0: Revelation this evening, Revelation chapter number two. I think it's very important tonight as we think about the Lord's Supper, we think about communion, we think about fellowship, and there's a reason why we observed that tonight before we looked at our text tonight. In chapter number two of Revelation, we begin the series of letters, the seven letters to the churches. And tonight we're going to deal with the subject of the Church of Ephesus. Uh, My intent tonight is really going to be more of an introduction, uh, probably more of an introduction than anything, to give us a little bit of insight and a little bit of background to, of course why these letters were being written, uh, what the church itself was dealing with, and more importantly, what the Lord Jesus Christ noticed about these churches. If you look with me at Revelation 2, we see there in verse number 1, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God." I'm not sure how familiar you are with Ephesus. We're familiar with Ephesus scripturally. We know that Paul was associated with the church at Ephesus. We understand the book of Ephesians, the letter. But Ephesus itself was a very wealthy and a very prosperous, and by even today's standards, uh, would have been a very magnificent city. Uh, It was an extravagant place, especially known for a temple. There was a temple that was there that was built for the pagan goddess Diana. It would have been the very center of town, most likely, a very prominent place where Diana, this goddess, was worshipped. She was so worshipped that one of the great occupations of the day were those who were, uh, were, were shaping and building idols to Diana. Uh, it had become really a way of commerce, and for many years, if you were to go back and look throughout history in all of Asia, it was a it was the center of where all business was being done, where all commerce was being done. Uh, it its location uh, made it very uh, uh, very accommodating uh, because it was connected to all of the major cities in what's referred to as Asia Minor. Uh, it had a harbor that could could take in even the largest of the ships of that day, which, of course, were much different than what we're familiar with today. But the Temple of Diana was an extremely important aspect of Ephesus. We would probably describe it in what we'd say today as a museum. It was a place to to come and a place that was considered a treasure to them. Uh, The the Ephesians, the people at Ephesus, uh, it was a a place uh, of refuge Uh, We can see uh, how many things are wrong with that. But it was also one of the biggest employers. (laughs) Many were employed by the temple. Uh, Silversmiths, people that were making silver statues, people that were making these idols. Uh, It was a place uh, that was very well known. They made little idols. They made little religious trinkets. They made idols to those so they could worship Diana. So that everybody who passed through this temple could, in a sense, if they chose to, could get a religious trinket from where they had been. Now, of course, you and I think about this and we think there's a lot wrong with that. Now, there are so many things wrong with this idea, this concept of what was going on. And we think, where in the world uh, is the church? Where, where is it? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul uh, came to that city on his third missionary journey. Acts 18 through Acts 20 teaches us that he preached the gospel in Ephesus for over three years. He was there ministering and preaching. Multitudes, an innumerable amount of people were saved by the grace of God, by the Apostle Paul's preaching. Uh, God's grace uh, was certainly uh, being felt and evidenced in that place. There was a church. It was established there rather quickly. It became a place that was the antithesis to the temple of Diana. It became a place of truth. It became a place that we want like to say today it was a lighthouse. It was a light shining in the darkness. And even in those days, much to many people's surprise, it was the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Christ Jesus that was being preached. That's not a modern creation. God's Free and sovereign grace was the message and was the gospel that the Apostle Paul was preaching. It didn't originate with the Reformers. It didn't originate with Calvin. It was, it was what John, John was preaching. It was what Paul was preaching. But the church at Ephesus was devoted to Christ. Uh, they had a love for Christ. It was known throughout the Christian world, as believers, as word spread about this church at Ephesus. This church was known for its zeal for Christ, its zeal and devotion to the gospel. And yet, when we get to the point now where we see the letters being written, another generation had arisen, and a little problem we'll use. Call it a little problem. It's not a little problem. But something had changed. The church at Ephesus was still walking in the truth. They were still proclaiming the gospel, they were still had a level of devotion, but something happened, something happened that was not discernible to those who were there, especially what we'll see in a moment, especially those messengers, those pastors who were at the helm of those at that church. The Lord Christ himself finds a fault. He finds something there that's not right. He finds something that he, through the letters that are sent, he sends a letter to the church of Ephesus, a fault that the people were not aware of, a fault that the people didn't see. And I think this is really important for us to understand, but Christ saw it. You see there are many things even in the church today that may, sometimes we don't see. We don't discern it. Part of observing the Lord's Supper it's to discern the Lord's body. To discern the Lord's body means that you discern for what it is, you discern it for what the meaning of it is, what the Lord's body and his, his crucifixion and His burial, His resurrection, that you discern what's happening here. That's why to eat unworthily would be to partake in something that you don't understand or you're, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. This discerning eye. the people were unaware of the fault that it entered in. Christ sends this letter to the church. This letter was sent and would have, been, would have been publicly, would have been read in the assembly of the saints. And really what's key to this passage, and we won't probably get in depth on this tonight, we'll probably look more at this next week, but verse 4 really had to have really hit right at their heart. He says, nevertheless, remember we've talked about how theological that word is, and a lot of times nevertheless enters into something of a very positive nature. This is the exact opposite. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now that's what my my translation has is somewhat in italics. It's there to give clarity. But nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. How could a church that's still standing for the truth, still proclaiming the gospel, still has a devotion to God, be told by the Lord himself, but you have left your first love? Is it possible to actually still proclaim the gospel, still stand for truth, and yet leave your first love? Well, if it could happen to the church of Ephesus, and it certainly could happen with us. I have somewhat against you. Now remember, the Apostle John, in the previous chapter, had written about the things which he had seen. Chapter 2 really introduces us to the, the things that are. So these seven letters that are written were being written to the churches as they currently were at that time. This is what was going on in that time. Remember, John's on the Isle of Patmos. He's been banished there for the Word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ, we learned uh, very early in our study. And he writes these things according to the command of God. Remember the vision that he saw last week and how he saw him, and he fell at his feet as dead, verse 17 of chapter 1 tells us, and he laid his right hand upon him, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. He, he made that promise to John, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. But this present state of these seven churches of Asia, Jesus writes, And sends these letters. John is directed to write to every one of them according to their present state and their present circumstances. And to inscribe or write every letter to the angel of that church. You'll notice that it says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Revelation unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, the minister. Or the ministers of the church are called angels because they are the messengers of God. These letters were being primarily, first of all, sent to those ministers, those pastors first. Who I believe, just like the congregation, did not discern that they had left their first love. That really is what the accusation or the reproof against the church at Ephesus really centers around. They left their first love. He commends them, but he also condemns the idea that they have left their first love. He commends them also for having a similar doctrine or a similar belief towards the Nicolaitans, which we'll talk about them in just a moment. But we see that these letters are very specific to the churches in which they're being written to. So verses 1-7 through of chapter 2 is the letter to Ephesus. Verses 8 through 11 of the chapter are written to the church at Smyrna. Verses 12 through 17 are written to the church at Pergamos. And verses 18 through 29 are written to the church at Thyatira. Now, length of the letter does not always indicate good or bad. In other words, just because the letter is longer doesn't mean that that means the circumstances are worse. Or if the letter is shorter, doesn't mean that all is well. But notice the congregation that Christ sent the letter to, specifically tonight, the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus. So this is what's happening in that church. These first of these letters is directed towards the church of Ephesus, a very famous church, a church planted by the Apostle Paul, Acts 19. And afterwards, we learn, was watered and even at one point governed by John, And we know that this was a church that had an excellent spirit. This was a church that cared for the souls of people. This was a church that that proclaimed the gospel. This was a church that it no doubt when it was first established and planted, it had a zeal and a love and a devotion for God. That was what we can only say today was very on fire. Not in the emotional sense, but for a, almost a jealous desire that the gospel be protected and that the gospel be proclaimed in its truths. So this church, when it was planted, certainly was what it should be. And notice that the author is very clearly identified of who is saying this. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he, that's Christ, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. We learned last week that the candlesticks are a reference to the churches themselves, and the seven stars is also a reference back to the messengers or the ambassadors, i.e., the pastors, the elders of that church. So these are, again, titles. Christ, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Notice this, he holds the stars in his right hand. The ministers, the stars of Christ, they are under his protection, they are under his care. It is really an amazing thing that Christ knows the number of them. He knows all of his ministers, just as he knows the number of stars in the heavens. He calls them by their names. He knows who they are. And he knows who the ministers of the gospel are. Just as the stars in the sky, he directs, he he disposes, he fills those messengers with the light and the influence. He supports them. He gives them the message. They are simply messengers. Every pastor, every elder that stands up for a congregation of people is a messenger of God. They are simply just giving the message that God has already given. It's not what they want. It's not what they desire you to know. It's what God says that you need to know. So he holds the stars in his right hand. But it says he also walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. This really demonstrates to us Christ's relation to the church. He walks into the, in the midst of His churches. It's His relation to them. Christ, although He's not present bodily, we know that the Spirit indwells every believer. And by the presence of the Spirit in us, we know that Christ Himself is observing our state. He's, he takes pleasure in those things which are being done properly. Though Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, it's described as walking in the midst of his churches. He's observing. He's observing what's going on. I think it would do us well to understand every time that we think of ourselves as a church and gather together, we're being observed. Not by the eyes of men, although men are observing. You that are seated here tonight are observing the goings-on, This service of the, this, the this service tonight. The people that are online are observing, they're seeing. But the one thing that they cannot know and they cannot really see and will have a difficult time discerning is what the Lord himself discerns. He discerns what you and I cannot discern in one another. Just like when we observe the supper together, I cannot discern whether you truly are of partaking worthily. It's impossible for me to see outwardly. You can say that I am, you can say that everything is right. I've examined myself and I I I am worthy to take this. I think it would help us, even as it was written to the church at Ephesus, for us to realize that we are being observed. We're being observed about what is right and what's also wrong. What are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? Now, it is a great encouragement to know that Christ cares for his churches. I don't know about you, but it encourages me greatly to know that Christ actually cares about this little church on Petrie Road. It's amazing to me that he cares about me. It does not amaze you that he cares about you, that he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world and chose you out before the foundation of the world, that you would be one of his children. He cares for you and he cares for his churches. It's an encouragement, but it's also very humbling and it's very challenging to think about everything that Christ has established the church to be is what he intended it to be. So the congregation the Church of Ephesus, although this is written to them, this certainly could apply to any church, he's observing, he knows our intents, It's possible for us to stand up and proclaim the gospel and say we're for the gospel and say we are we are for the truth, and yet we could be found just like the church at Ephesus was. I have somewhat against you, you've left your first love. So there is a commendation. Notice verse 2 is really the commendation that Christ gives to the church. I know thy works and thy labor. And thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now, 2 and 3, verse 2 and 3, are really the commendation. The commendation was both to the ministers, the messengers, the pastors, and the congregation. And he says, I know your work. I know your labor, and I know your patience. There's no doubt in the church of Ephesus, and you study through scripture, you find out that this church was certainly a church that was very diligent. They were always laboring for the gospel. But this is a commendation. And It's a commendation of those things he recognizes as what's being done right. One thing he commends them for is their diligence. I know thy works and thy labor. I know what you have done. For my name's sake thou hast labored and hast not fainted. In other words, you have continued even in the face of great opposition, even in the face of persecution, you have not fainted. Verse 3 says, And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Christ, as walking among the candlesticks among the churches, is keeping an account of every day's work. No labor is in vain when the labor is done in the Lord. Patience, thy labor and thy patience. You know, you can be diligent and not patient. You can be laborious, sorry for the big word, laborious and not patient. You can be zealous and not patient. He recognizes their patience. (laughs) That, for me, is always a very, strikes at the heart for me, personally. Patience. You see, it's easier to be diligent than it is to be patient. It's easier to labor and to do the works than to be patient. I have patience, rather. But they were patient. The ministers and even the congregation had great patience. They were enduring hardship, there's no question. Read through the book, read through the church at Ephesus and and the Bible, read through the book of Acts, look at the things that were happening, even what Paul talked about when he left Ephesus and he said, after my departure, grievous wolves are gonna enter in. And even through all of that, he still acknowledges, you stood. And that's partly what he mentions here in verse verse number three, and verse number two rather, when he talks about how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. This is not just a random statement. This means that he was commending their zeal against that which was evil. He says, thou canst not bear that which is evil. They were not allowing evil. They were not allowing it to enter in. But there were also specifics. There's a specific Individuals he had in mind here. There were those who would come into the church and claim to be apostles. And he says, You were diligent and patient enough that you would examine them and you would find out that they're not actually apostles, they were actually liars. That's exactly what verse 2 is about. There were those that tried to get in, and you tried them, you put them to the test. Remember, it's exactly what Paul said would happen. Now, by timing-wise, this is probably at least a generation beyond that. But you'll notice that he said even at that, there had, had been those who had risen up in this church that pretended not just to be ministers, but they pretended to be apostles. Remember, even the Apostle Paul would oftentimes have to remind the people of his authority, saying, I am an apostle, because they questioned his authority. But these individuals, they tested them. They were examined and they were found to be false. But there was this patience. You hast born and hast patience. And for my name's sake, hast labored and has not fainted. They met difficulties, they met persecution, they met trouble, and yet they had the patience to still go on and stand for that which was right now i will tell you if we were sitting here sitting here tonight and that's all that we received and that letter was directed at us would our natural response be well we certainly have everything right then we're not letting evil in we're testing the evil which rises up proving it to be false we're standing for the truth we have patience we have good works we're, late, we're, we're laborious, we're diligent, we're doing everything right, could there actually be a problem? Jesus says there is, nevertheless. This is always, I think they're all equally tough, but this one, is, this one to me is always the toughest one for my, my feeble mind to get my, get my mind around this. Because I have a hard time equating how could they have left their first love and still be doing all of these things? Isn't one connected with the other? Yet there's something to this. There's something to what he's telling the church at Ephesus. So he gives them a commendation to this congregation, but then he gives them what we can only refer to As a condemnation, not to their soul, but a condemnation that Christ gives to this church. It is a rebuke. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now, here's what I was thinking about today. No matter how good we think we are, and no matter how good we think something is, it's equally as possible to have something wrong in us. Now, I don't have any doubt in my mind that churches today, and we could, be, we could succumb to this, can get in the pattern where we say, there is so many good things going on, nothing's amiss, nothing is wrong, everything is exactly as it should be. Because look what's happening the gospel's being preached every single time, the whole council of God, people are diligent, people are laboring, people are patient, and yet Jesus says, But I have something against you. Christ is completely impartial. In other words, he's not going to show favoritism. He's not going to look at one and overlook this one and say, well, I like that church better, so I'm going to overlook them. No, he's rebuking exactly what he sees in each one of these churches. He observes what is good and praise the Lord for that. But he also observes that which is not good, that which is not right. And I will tell you, we ought to be thankful for God's rebukes and His reproofs. I know it doesn't sell devotional books. Because everybody wants a devotional book that just makes us feel great about ourselves. But it's good to be rebuked. It's good to be reproved. It's good to say, when there's something amiss, I have something against you. Because we can get very comfortable in saying, look, everything seems to be as it should be. The sin that Christ is charging this church with is a decline in its love for him and its zeal for him. Thou hast left thy first love. You haven't forsaken it. You haven't turned away from it. But you've lost the degree of fervency that you once had. really what's at the heart of this. He didn't say, you've forsaken me and turned away. He's not calling them false professors. He's not calling them apostates. But what he is saying is, is that you have in degree, you have declined in the degree of your zeal and love for me. That's different than when it first appeared. You know, the very first time a person, and I, 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 I'm not going to embarrass this person, but recently when someone was explaining to me the joy of their conversion. When they were telling me the thrill of Christ saving them. The, 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 the fervency in which they speak of Christ and the fervency in which they proclaim His name, the way in which they describe, here I am, this unworthy sinner, and Christ saved me. There's this zeal and this fervency that we have in, that, in those beginning moments when we know we've been saved. And even our desire for holiness, our desire for personal righteousness... And even our desire and love for glory is the strongest that it ever is at the moment of when we're converted for many of us. That's that's when it's strong. And sadly, it declines for many. This This is what had happened to Ephesus. Ephesus was still proclaiming the gospel. They were still preaching Christ. But he says, you've left in degree your fervency for me. And what does this mean for you and I? This means if we don't take great care and great diligence to preserve that love that we have for Christ, it will decline. Folks, it's not enough for you to just get up every day and just assume that your fervency will remain as it is just by osmosis. But all I have to do is take in a breath, and I'm going to be fervently, have fervent love for Christ. You have to diligently guard it. You have to diligently feed it. You have to keep it from declining. Which means you have to put it before you and make sure that it is what you are thinking. It's what you're spending the majority of your time considering. You say, preacher, we can't do that. We have jobs. We have responsibilities. Listen. Even in your jobs and even in the responsibilities you can have, have you, you can always have your love for Christ ever before you. Whatever job you're doing. You say, but I work in such a difficult environment. Many of you do. But remember, we can do and be busy about God's work and Christ could look at us and say the very same thing. He says, I see you, that church on Petrie Road, I see you. I know your works, but I have something against you. You've left, not forsaken, but you've lessened in degree. Now again, I know it's not a popular way to preach these days because everybody wants to think that we can just be whatever we choose to be and Christ is happy with us and he's he's pleased with our attempt. He's pleased that our well, you know, you gave it, gave it a good try. I don't think Christ any way, shape, or form is telling the church at Ephesus that this is okay. Like, I don't think he's telling them, you know what, I have something against you, but it's all right. That's what we'll look at next week. Here's how I know it's not all right. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art, notice the word he uses, fallen. He compares... Leaving your first love, the degree of your fervent love for Christ, he compares it to falling. Now notice he's not saying falling away, not become an apostate, but what does he say the remedy for that is? Repent. And do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of this place. What's the candlestick? The candlestick's a church. He said, I will remove the candlestick out of his place except thou repent we think just existing as a church god's pleased with that it's not what he's telling the church at ephesus he says this is serious enough that if you don't repent i'll remove that candlestick from that place it's easy for us to get by the lie that god needs you and i too much. To ever remove a candlestick. No. You see, when we think about what, and we'll look more at this next week, when we think about what Christ is counseling this church to do, his counsel begins with repentance. His counsel doesn't begin with try to get things back in order. Now he does does say do the first works. There is a bringing them back to that. Go back to that fervent love that you once had. Go back to that fervent love that motivated what you did your first works. But you understand that even as we we understand it, we can be correct in our doctrine. We can even be correct in our service. But if our love for Christ is not what it should be, then he should have something against us. Sadly, we're in a society, we're in a day and age when church is anything goes. All you do is just assemble and have good intentions and well-meaning, and Christ is pleased, God is pleased with the church. No, he says, you could be busy religiously all you want, and I could still have something against you. Now, it cuts, me, it, it cuts me to the heart to even think about that. Because I think of, even personally, how many times I let the thought creep into my mind, and I still struggle with this. So, open confession to you, I still struggle with this. But we're doing so much. Or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. But am I really ever stopping to think about, have I declined at all, in the slightest bit, in my fervency and my love for Christ, have I declined at all? I think it's probably fair to say at some point in all of our lives, even since we've been believers, at some point there's been a decline where it's not what it once was. What's the answer to it? Repent. If there's repentance is, the, is the, the solution, then what is Jesus saying about leaving your first love? He's calling it sin. Now you and I are really good about pointing out sin in everyone else, aren't we? Let's just be honest. We're real good at that. We, we're real good at looking at people's actions and their activities and saying, sin, sin, sin. But we're often not discerning enough to think Is it possible I might be guilty of the sin of leaving my first love? Well, certainly not me. I'm a church member. Certainly not me. I give. Certainly not me. Look at the church at Ephesus, who he commends greatly, could be found guilty of that, and it's possible that you and I can. Next week, we'll look a little bit more in depth about this reproof how we take what our present state is and how he was telling them, look at your present state of love for me now and compare it to what it once was. And see if there's been a decline. As difficult as these passages are to read, remember, our prayer is that God even for the salvation of a soul. What do we pray for? We pray that God would what? Through the Spirit, open their eyes, unstop their ears, be made willing to believe the truth. What do we do when we come to passages like this? We pray for the exact same thing. God, if I have in any way, shape, or form left my first love, open my eyes to see it. Open my ears to hear it. So that even when the the Bible is being preached or even if I'm reading and praying myself that I see, look, Christ does have something against me. I have left my first love. I think all of us tonight need to ask ourselves that question. Has there been a decline from my first love to Christ? Now, now, I will personally tell you, I'm not sure there's a more painful question that you can ask than that one. If we're being honest with ourselves and honest before God. It's kind of like when we pray and ask God to show us, like David said, show show me if there's any wicked way in me. You realize if you pray that prayer, every single time God's going to show you something. So if you get up from your prayer and say, oh, I'm good, there's no wicked thing in me. Oh, there's something there. But the joy and the the wonder of this is, is there's repentance and repentance leads to this restoration and it leads to this place where our relationship is as it should be. It's not a restored relationship. The relationship doesn't change. But there's a big difference in communion and fellowship with God and with Christ specifically when our love is in order the way it should be. All of us I think should honestly answer that question, painful as it is, has my love for Christ declined? What do I do if it has? Repent. Repent and do the first works. This is not an easy message to give you folks. It's not easy for me to receive. And I don't think it's the first letter. Matter of fact, I know it's not by chance that this is the order in which we have it. But I think it's one of the most important questions we can ever ask ourselves. Has my love for Christ declined? I would encourage you for next week, read this passage again. Meditate on it. Specifically, focus on the next few verses. We'll deal primarily next week with verses 5, 6, and 7. We'll come back to this leaving a first love, but read ahead. And if you don't have a, a study that you're going through, make this part of your Bible study this week. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, this is as pointed of Scripture as any part of your word can be. Lord, to see the commendation that's given to the church of Ephesus, the good things that they were doing, what you were commending them for, but it's hard to escape. That nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. Where we are thankful that our Lord's love for us does not decline. And the Lord's love for us isn't stronger and isn't weaker. It's always the same. It's a perfect love. But Father, I do pray that the Spirit would examine our hearts and that we would be yielded to the Spirit's finding as we look to your Word and we consider and we pray and we think, is there a possibility that I have left my first love, Lord, I pray that your word tonight as it's been given has been given properly through my, through my speaking, Lord. But I understand that it's not my words, it's the, it's the word of God and the spirit must be attend the word with power. Lord, there could even be someone here tonight who has yet to be converted, someone who has not repented of their sins and has not believed on Christ alone for their salvation. And we pray if that be the case, that Lord, you would open their eyes and open their ears to receive the truth, make them willing to believe the truth that's in front of them. But Father, those of us who are believers tonight, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be challenged by what Christ had to say to the church of Ephesus. We thank you and we praise you that you are so good to us. You are always faithful to us even when we're not always faithful. And may we make that a point of rejoicing and may it be a point of our worship is knowing that you're always faithful even when we're not. And Lord, we know that we need your help. We need the Spirit's help. And we ask for that tonight. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll